A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And welcome to the Napoleon Assist and the first instalment of Irish Month. For the next five Wednesdays, the Napoleon Assist is going weekly as we cover a topic that most British historians seem to love to quietly forget, Ireland's experiences and contribution to the Napoleonic Wars. Joining me today, I am very excited to have Katrina Kennedy on the podcast, a senior lecturer at York University who has done some brilliant work. And I'll, I'll be honest here, I'm a bit of a fan. Her current, uh, currently available publication is Narratives of War, Military and Civilian Experience in Britain and Ireland, but she's also working on a book entitled Only Echoes, Women, Politics and the Irish Nation in the Age of Revolution, which is coming out soon. Katrina, it's great to have you on. How have you been? I'm good, Zach. Thank you so much for the very kind and generous introduction and for inviting me to here to speak to you today. I'm always delighted to be able to talk more about Irish history um, to uh, particularly a British audience. So you may have a wide, wider audience beyond that. <laughs> yeah, I think we're quite kind of closely knit, but uh, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a growing um, audience uh, across the world, particularly in the States, but also in the Netherlands. Um, I oh, think Beatrice de Graaf is particularly mm -hmm. kind of responsible for that. <laughs> Let's start with the wider context, because I'm aware that a lot of our listeners probably won't be familiar with Ireland's history during this period, as I kind of alluded to in the introduction, mm -hmm. because of the historiography and how it kind of pushes Ireland's experience to the fringe to a degree. Mm -hmm. So give us a sense of Ireland's relationship with Britain during the 1700s. Okay, so well, technically Ireland is a separate and independent kingdom in this period, so it has its own parliament, um, but it shares a crown with, it shares the monarch with Britain and the monarch is represented in Ireland by the Lord Lieutenant. Um, so it has an independent parliament, but actually in practice, it's very much subordinate to Britain. So Britain has the right to legislate for Ireland and also has the right to veto any legislation that's passed by the Irish parliament. Um, 
And of course, it should also uh, be remembered that the Irish Parliament itself only represents a fraction of the Irish population. So it really only represents members of the Anglican Protestant Church um, and excludes the uh, Catholic majority. So that's about 70 to 75% of the uh, population. And during the 18th century, a series of penal laws are passed um, that uh, introduce various disabilities against Catholics in Ireland. So they're not allowed to own land, to vote, to bear arms and so on. Um, so political power is very much concentrated um, amongst that Protestant minority um, in Ireland. And for much of the 18th century, particularly in the earlier part of the century, they tend to think of themselves, the Irish Protestants, as British subjects in Ireland. Um, so they have a strong sense of themselves as British settlers and their primary identity lies with Britain rather than Ireland. But over the course of the 18th century, that begins to change, um, you know, because of the sense of being a dependent kingdom who is at the mercy of um, Britain in various ways. And that particularly, um, those grievances um, kind of emerge around economic issues. Um, so for instance, the, in 1699, there's, uh, the British Parliament introduces a Woolen Act that effectively prohibits exports of wool to anywhere from Ireland and that really crushes um, the Irish woolen industry which otherwise could have been quite a successful element of the Irish economy. So that is one of the first kind of flashpoints where um, an Irish patriot um, sentiment begins to crystallise um, and there'll be various other flashpoints across the course of the 18th century um, where the Irish Protestants um, will begin to seek greater autonomy from Britain. There, there are lots of questions that I'm, I'm keen to ask mm -hmm. just off the back of what you've said there. Um, I guess let's try chronologically first of all. The one that always really strikes me in terms of being a, a flashpoint perhaps to create an embryonic resentment mm -hmm. towards England particularly, is Cromwell and the Drogheda massacre. Mm. Is that something that at this point has become part of Irish folklore or is it something that we've just kind of tried to join, join the dots between in, in terms of the, the story of Irish, I'm reluctant to say Irish nationalism, but certainly resentment towards Britain? Yes, yeah, so certainly for Irish Catholics, that, that memory of um, the Cromwellian invasions of the mid 17th century uh, and, uh, and the suppression of the um, Catholic rebellions in Ireland will be a lingering source of resentment through the 18th century. At the same time though, Irish Catholics are quite quiescent in the 18th century or look like they're quite quiescent. You know, there is, if you compare Ireland and Scotland in this period, it's Scotland that's having the rebellions and they're part of the union. Um, so although there is um, a strong 
Jacobite um, sentiment amongst Catholics, so who are looking to restore the Stuart monarchy in Britain and Ireland, um, it doesn't really manifest itself in any acts of insurrection. Um, so, but yes, there, that, that sense of um, grievance stretching back to the 17th century, and obviously it's during the 17th century that most Catholic land is transferred out of Catholic hands and into Protestant um, hands. So at the beginning of the 18th century, maybe only 15% of the territory of Ireland is in Catholic hands. Um, and actually that will, the penal laws will ensure that, um, you know, by the mid-century only 5% of Catholic, of, of land in Ireland um, is owned by Catholics. I mean, I, I, I'm listening to everything that you're saying, and I've always kind of wondered this about Britain and how it treats Ireland. Is it fair to say that Britain kind of acts like a colonial power in Ireland? Uh, when you think about how Britain mm -hmm. acts in the wider empire in the 19th century, there are, I don't know if I'm just kind of drawing tenuous parallels here, but there seems mm -hmm. to be a lot of, there's a lot of kind of commonality. Mm -hmm. Is this where we first tend to see Britain acting in this way towards, if you like, a, a conquered territory? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you, this is a kind of a, a, a question, it's a really good question, it's one that a lot of ink has been spilt over by Irish historians. And certainly, I think if you look um, to probably earlier periods in Irish history, um, in the 16th and 17th century, um, there is an argument to be made, and it has been made, that Ireland is a uh, laboratory for the colonial project. So they'll test out, um, uh, um, you know, colonial um, strategies in Ireland first before applying those elsewhere, particularly America would be uh, seen as one place where they're applying the lessons learned from Ireland and from the plantation of English and Scottish settlers into Ireland in the 16th and 17th century. If we look to the age, I suppose there's two issues to think about there is that on the one hand are Irish Protestants or that group of um, the descendants of those English and Scottish settlers, they are a colony, I suppose, in that sense, that they're, um, a, uh, uh, they are colonial settlers. And is their attitude towards Irish Catholics evidence of a colonial mentality? So are they looking on them as a subordinate and savage race? Um, is there a racial component, I suppose, is one of the questions that has been asked. And that's quite tricky to um, make that case, because really the divide is religious here. And, you know, the Irish Protestant ruling class accepts into its ranks Catholics who have converted to Protestantism. So there are very um, influential Protestants in the 18th century who are originally descended from Catholics. Um, so on those grounds, you might say it's not, it's a religious um, divide rather than an ethnic or racial one. Then if we look at the relationship between Ireland and Britain and think, is that a colonial relationship, you know, at the level of the states? Um, most Irish Protestants in the 18th century would say, no, we're not a colony. Um, 
please stop treating us as one. So that's the kind of argument they're making to the to, to the British. You know, why are you treating us like a colony when we're British subjects here? We we should enjoy, you know, we share the same monarch or we want our equal rights that we should enjoy under the British crown. Um, but clearly there are colonial elements to it in terms of the um the dominance um of the the um british state um, and the influence it exerts over irish the irish parliament and through the lord lieutenant you know this representative of the british crown who manipulates the irish parliament in various ways um but again you might draw the parallel between America there. So there's a very similar trajectory um, in terms of the evolution of the American colonists' sense of themselves. So they start off, you know, asking for their rights as British subjects um, in the same way. Um, but obviously by the time of the revolution, they increasingly identify as Americans and, you know, are breaking away from the mother country. So there's a kind of similar trajectory that you might track in Ireland. I really like that phrase that you use, laboratory for the British Empire. Mm -hmm. It's I not mine. I, <laughs> I wish I'd coined it, but... <laughs> I might call the episode that, actually. That's possibly a little bit of a kind of a clickbait thing, but it's, it's a, a great way of describing it. Um, I, I kind of want to ask about nationalism and, and um, notions of Britishness, but I think we'll probably save that for a little bit later because you were talking about religion and clearly we have to talk about religion in quite some depth mm -hmm. um, to at least partly understand the really deep divides and the tensions during this period. People hopefully know that kind of they've got Protestantism and Catholic Catholicism mm -hmm. that have divided society for most of the 17th century. Um, we see that in the English Civil War, Glorious Revolution, has much really changed by the 1790s because it's worth bearing in mind for folks who don't know that the Catholic Emancipation Act is still decades away at this point. Yeah, so things do begin to change um, towards the last quarter of the 18th century. Um, so, um, you know, as I already said, there there uh, were a series of uh, penal laws um, passed um, in the early decades of the 18th century that are really there to copper fasten Protestant power in, um, in Ireland. Um, and it should be remembered as well that it's not just Catholics who suffer, so it's also Protestant dissenters um, who are not members of the Anglican Church. So they suffer less severe disabilities, but they're still, um, say, restricted from holding public office and so on. So that's a real source of grievance, particularly for the Ulster Scots Presbyterian community concentrated in the, in the north of Ireland. So they also feel at odds with this Protestant ascendancy that's the dominant ruling um, elite. Um, but towards the, in the last quarter of the century, there are a series of Catholic relief acts. So um, in 1778, 82 and 1793, and they do introduce some concessions so Catholics are allowed to own land and longer leases, they're allowed to enlist in the British Army and in 1793 they are given the vote but they're not allowed to sit in Parliament. Um, 
And the reason for that, um, for those concessions, um, is partly to do with British policy towards Ireland. Um, so one of the things that um, they understand is that Irish Protestant patriots want greater independence, but they want Ireland to remain a Protestant nation. So that becomes a kind of weapon that the British can use against the Protestant patriots, at saying effectively, if you push for greater independence, we will emancipate the Catholics and you will become a minority within your own country. So that's a kind of, you know, a, 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 a constant threat that they can wield. And the other reason, of course, that the British are particularly keen to grant concessions to Catholics um, is because of military policy. Um, so as you well know, Ireland or you know Britain um, is at war from much of the 18th century. Catholics are this untapped resource of military manpower, but up until 1778 they're not allowed to join the army, um, officially at least. Um, so granting these concessions and allowing them to enlist um, really helps to kind of reinforce um, the British troops at this at this point. And of course, they do join in their hundreds of thousands, and will will go on to, uh, to to be a significant component of the of the British army. Um, so yes, that's the kind of context in which there's some gradual concessions being granted to, to Catholics in this period. I'm, I'm really interested in what you said about how kind of Catholic emancipation is sort of used as a, mm. almost a, a threat to hold over um, the Protestant minority. Is that an idle threat in the sense that, is there any real will to do that? And, you know, if, if the, the Protestant kind of wing had, had called government's mm -hmm. bluff, would the government ever have really gone through with that? Um, well, yes, that's a good question. And we'll see it, I mean, um, in 1801. The problem is, would, would um, the George III have allowed full emancipation? And when Ireland is united with Britain um, in 1801, he puts his foot down um, because the, actually one of the promises of the Act of Union was that Catholics would be granted full emancipation. Um, but he, you know, George III says that his coronation oath mandates him to protect the Protestant character of the state. Um, so, yeah, it's a good question whether, you know, if Ireland was independent, <laughs> nominally independent, whether he would have also seen that as his duty. And I think probably yes. Um, and obviously would have been nervous. There would have been a nervousness about having a large Catholic um, majority state on the doorstep of um, Britain. And if you think about the... Um, uproar that accompanies Catholic um, relief in Britain in 1780 um, and the Gordon riots and other popular um, protests against those. Um, yes, there clearly would have been a nervousness about uh, um, pushing too hard on that door, yeah. 
Well, well, let's tap into that. I mean, in terms of the grassroots attitude in Britain, mm. are events like the Gordon Wrights kind of representative of popular kind of attitudes towards the Irish and particularly Irish Catholics, or are, is it sort of a, a minority who are vocal and then a, a kind of a, a minority amongst the grassroots who are more mm. acquiescent? I think we were, you could say, I mean, it's not even specifically Irish Catholics as such, but anti-Catholicism um, is it's such a core element of British and Irish and um, the Protestant psyche. Um, you know, if you think they're really um, nurtured on stories of Catholic atrocities stretching back to, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs and, pro and Catholic persecution. Um, under um, Mary Tudor and so on. And then in Ireland, um, added to that are the stories um, of the Catholic atrocity literature around um, the 1641 rebellion, where there had been large massacres of Protestants, very much exaggerated in this literature, but that's really a staple of the Irish Protestant um, sort of reading um, uh, in, in this period. So yes, that kind of image of Catholics as persecuting, savage, uh, and so on is very much imprinted on the Protestant psyche. So there is that kind of um, broader uh, anti-Catholic sentiment. Things are beginning to change a little bit, maybe more amongst the ruling elites um, from the, you know, the in the later part of the 18th century. Um, partly because of a kind of spirit of enlightenment and religious toleration. Um, also in part because Jacobitism is a political threat. Um, is no longer um, such an issue. So in 1766, um, James III, James Stuart uh, dies and really Jacobitism at that point is finished. So there isn't the same anxiety um, uh, about, I suppose, Catholicism as a political threat at that point. Let, let's, I mean, I, I've got loads of questions that I could ask, but we, sh we should probably kind of keep the conversation moving forwards. Let's turn to the, the 1798 rebellion, mm -hmm. because there's a there's a long lead into that, isn't there, in part courtesy of the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. Yes, and actually I'd, I'd stretch back even further to the to the American Revolution. Um, uh, so the, it, it is within this broader, it, the 1798 rebellion happens within this broader age of revolution. But if we look at what happens during the American Revolution is that um, Britain, of course, is uh, um, engaged in the war with America. Uh, and in Ireland, units for home defence are established, which are ostensibly to defend Ireland in the event of invasion. But these volunteers, as they're known, um, go on to demand greater independence for Ireland. So they, they seize that opportunity, um, you know, of a, a Britain that's distracted by the war with America um, and weakened by it to push for greater concessions um, in conjunction with these patriot politicians in Parliament. And they have some success. So they do win 
um, economic concessions and some legislative um, uh, concessions as well. Um, but then that movement splits over the question of Catholic emancipation, should they push for um, full Catholic emancipation and also over political reform, should they extend the franchise, should they um, reform, you know, the uh, um, representation boroughs uh, um, electing the parliament. Um, so it kind of goes into um, uh, cold storage for much of the 1780s and then the French Revolution happens and that really reignites that movement that had for a brief period electrified Ireland. Um, so you can see that those, that kind of longer um, roots for um, what happens in the 1790s going back to this earlier movement. But the French Revolution's important for various reasons. Um, firstly, it's Protestants look on it as being very important in terms of how they think about Catholics. You know, so it's a revolution happening in a Catholic country. And that really seems to break the perceived connection between Catholicism and ideas of despotism that again are one of these kind of enduring tropes in the Protestant psyche is that, you know, the continental monarchies are, the Catholic continental monarchies are absolutist and the French are slaves, you know, all, all that kind of uh, rhetorics, but here they are seizing liberty for themselves. So that changes the way they um, begin to think about Catholics in Ireland. And secondly, it provides this new language, you know, the rights of man, liberty, equality, fraternity, that offers a way of transcending those deep-seated religious divisions, those historical, long-standing historical grievances. Now there's a kind of language of natural rights that doesn't appeal to the past, doesn't appeal to religious identities, but um, is based on a sense of a common democratic humanity. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's, it, it, you know, really kind of revitalizes a campaign for reform and independence. Um, so the United Irishmen um, are founded in Belfast and Dublin in 1791 and much, of their founding involves kind of celebrating the anniversary of the storm, you know, the, the fall of the Bastille and so on. So they immediately identify themselves as supporters of the French Revolution. And they begin as an open constitutional movement. So um, they're campaigning for Catholic emancipation, um, parliamentary reform and full um, male universal suffrage. So that's quite a radical, politically radical program at the time. So a lot of what they're doing in those early years is, um, uh, you know, writing, publishing, trying to, to transmit this non-sectarian message. So that's, you know, one of their real insights is that as long as 
the Irish are divided by religion, Britain will always be able to play them off against each other. So, you know, what Wolf Tone, one of their leaders, says is that we must uh, substitute the common name of Irishmen for that of Catholic prop Protestant and dissenters. So we must be united as Irishmen, not divided by our religious differences. Um, so they're trying to get that message out. But of course, that's very difficult in a way, you know, persuading the, um, uh, the popular classes that have for so long been divided to look at their Protestant or Catholic neighbour in a new light and to, 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 to join together. Um, so it really changes though once Britain um, enters the war against revolutionary France and in that context any kind of opposition becomes potentially treasonous. So the United Irishmen are banned in 1794 and they're forced underground um, so they'll reconfigure at that point into a mass secretive insurrectionary movement that is intent on rebellion but that's not re that's not how they start out but it's how they they end up largely because of this kind of um broader wartime context and at the heart of all of this as you mentioned already is Theobald Wolf Tone mm -hmm. what was Tone himself actually like as an individual yeah, I mean, I think that Wolf Tone is probably one of the um, more beguiling figures in Irish history. And obviously he's, you know, one of the um, heroes of Irish nationalism um, and widely considered to be the founding father of modern Irish republicanism. Um, but uh, I think one of the reasons he's so appealing is because he left these wonderful journals and memoirs. Um, and whenever I'm teaching um, Wolf Tone with uh, my students, I always ask them if they think he appears like um, their stereotype of a revolutionary. And he really doesn't because he's a much kind of, he's, he's a very witty, fun, convivial, person and that really comes across in the journals where he's willing to make fun of himself he's um you know he likes a drink you know that his journals are have extended sections on his hangovers <laughs> and how he got them um so yeah he's this very lively character he he's a, a teenager during the American War and during the kind of rise of the Irish volunteer movement. And he's absolutely entranced by that and by the military. So he plays truant from school um, to go and watch the volunteer reviews in, uh, in Dublin. And, uh, you know, it's at that point, you know, he traces his desire to be a soldier. So that's a kind of leading theme in Wolf Tone's life is that he was really a military adventurer. Um, but his father stops him from joining the army. Um, so he comes from a Protestant kind of middling class 
family. Um, so when he's not able to go into the army, he goes on to Trinity College Dublin, where he's a kind of lazy but gifted um, student. And then after that, you have the sense of somebody who's intellectually ambitious or, you know, he, he wants to make a name for himself, but is kind of looking for a cause. Um, so he spends some time developing a um, uh, a proposal to establish a British military colony um, in the Sandwich Islands, so what's currently um, Hawaii, um, uh, that he sends to the British government uh, a couple of times, but is rebuffed. Um, and some historians have suggested that it's that rejection by the British, the, the British Empire, as it were, that turns him into a nationalist, that he's a colonial outsider who, because he's rejected by the mother country, um, ends up um, seeking his revenge, as it were, by uh, throwing his lot in with um, Irish republicanism. So that's one possible uh, interpretation. But he is one of the founding members of the United Irishmen and his real skill is as a polemicist. He's a very gifted um, writer of political pamphlets. Um, so an, uh, a pamphlet he writes um, at the beginning of the 1790s, an argument on behalf of the Catholics of Ireland, which is writing in support of Catholic emancipation, trying to persuade those who are still um, reluctant um, to emancipate Catholics. It's one of the most widely circulated and read pamphlets in the 1790s in Ireland, along with Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man. <laughs> Sorry, a cat has appeared. <laughs> you know what, I'm not even going to cut that. The cat can absolutely stay. <laughs> so apologies if you hear some meowing. No classic uh, <laughs> life of COVID issues right there. Just cat has come to hog the camera. Okay, sorry. She's called Cleo after the muse of history, so maybe that was an <laughs> opportune moment for her to make an appearance. Um, but yeah, back to tone. Um, so he's uh, at kind of one of the chief writers for the United Irishmen, but when they're um, prescribed in 1794, he agrees to go into exile, firstly in the United States, which he hates and he has no time for the Americans, but then he goes to France um, to um, uh, try and negotiate French military assistance for an Irish rising. Um, and it's at this point that he finally realizes his ambition of becoming a soldier. Um, because he's appointed a brigadier general in um, uh, uh, the army of General Osh, which is sent to Ireland with a very large invasion force in uh, so about 20, 25,000 French soldiers um, in 1796. Um, so they're supposed to land um, off the coast of Cork in December 1796, but then there are terrible storms that um, stop them from landing. So it's a great what if moment in Irish history because if they'd landed at that point, um, you know, when the 
the authorities in Ireland just weren't really prepared for a rising or a French invasion. And this is a very substantial force. You know, things could have turned out very differently. But that's not successful. He returns to, to France and eventually joins a much sm smaller expedition um, that uh, goes to Ireland after the rebellion has begun. Um, but of course, this time they're expecting um, the French and it's intercepted by um, a Royal Navy ship um, and Tone is arrested and he's court-martialed in his French uniform of which he's incredibly proud so he's wearing this blue uniform and asks at his trial his one request is that he be allowed to uh, that he be killed as a soldier so he asks that he be shot rather than being hung drawn and quartered as a traitor but they deny him um, that request and he um, cuts his throat in prison and, and dies a pretty horrible death, but of course becomes a kind of um, nationalist martyr. So in some ways his importance in Irish history is, is as much about his death and his heroic reputation um, as it is about his actual actions. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This association with the French, is that, I mean, in many respects, it kind of seems like a natural association because mm. of the, the history between the, the British and, and, and the French and the, the religious connection as well. Is that kind of more damaging for their cause in the longer term because mm -hmm. of Britain being at war with France and so therefore the cause of Irish independence kind of becomes associated with the nation's enemy if you, if you see where I'm going. Yes no it is it's an interesting question of course it's much debated in, in amongst the United Irishmen themselves there there's a significant group who who are opposed French intervention as far as they're concerned they'll just end up replacing um, British rule with um, a, a French dictatorship you know and they're looking at what's happening elsewhere in Europe and thinking these are not they're not coming here to liberate us this could turn out very badly um, so there's a lot of debate in Ireland um, there clearly there has been a connection you know that the idea of um, a French supported invasion um, in support of, of a Jacobite rebellion 
um, is, you know, was a concern for much of the um, 18th century. And in fact, amongst the French um, Republicans, there's a lot of doubt really about whether the Irish are sufficiently Republican. You know, the French think they're too Catholic. You know, they've kind of, the French have kind of divested themselves of, um, you know, that the, the, the shackles of Catholicism. But, you know, the, their concern is that at heart, the Irish Catholics are royalists and enthralled to the church. And there's some good reason for that, because, of course, a lot of members of the French army in this period or, you know, in the pre-revolutionary French army would have been of Irish extraction and there were Irish brigades there. So and would have some of those would have remained loyal to Louis the 16th. So, um, you, you know, they, 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 the French aren't too sure about what they're going to find when they go to Ireland, you know, and Tone has to do a lot of work trying to persuade them. Um, that, uh, um, you know, that the Irish can be trusted. Um, so whether involving a foreign power kind of escalates it, I suppose this is one of the, you know, it happens again in, in 19, you know, 1916 during the First World War, those efforts to, to try and involve um, the Germans. And of course, that is quite damaging to, to the Irish cause. I think it's less so here because um, just Ireland was always going to be a defensive weak point for Britain, you know, that the, and that's partly what motivates, of course, the Act of Union in 1801 is that effort to um, close off Ireland as a potential launch pad for a French in invasion, yeah. Before we go any further, we should probably give people a, a quick sense of what actually happened during the mm -hmm. Manchester Rebellion. Yeah, so, I mean, in a way, what we look at, what we're looking at in 1798, so it's really the rebellion lasts from about May to September um, 1798, but it's a, a, a series of quite separate and disconnected uprisings. So there's um, a rebellion that lasts about two weeks in the north of Ireland, uh, at the very end, there'll be a French landing um, and a brief kind of rebellion in the west of Ireland that lasts about six weeks. Um, but the fighting is mainly concentrated or the place where the rebellion really takes hold is in um, the areas south of Dublin, uh, Wicklow and Wexford. And there's some um, mobilization in the um, counties to the north and west as well but it in some ways what we think of as the 1798 rebellion is really the rebellion in Wexford. This was not the county where anyone would have expected um, the I, I suppose the rising to be um, most intense. So obviously Dublin was originally intended to be the, the focal point um, of the, uh, the, the rising. So they were going to capture the city and then spread outwards um, from there. Um, but in the build-up to um, the rebellion, uh, the United Irish leadership has really been um, uh, 
decapitated you know it's been not literally but they, they had that you know uh much of the leadership has been arrested um uh, the united irishman itself they're riddled with spies and informers so so the government does have a, a pretty clear sense of their plans before the rising um they've also lost uh, one of their key figures lord edward fitzgerald um who's a very interesting figure again he comes from one of the the leading aristocratic Anglo-Irish families in Ireland um, fought with the British Army during the American War, which gives him um, key military experience that the other leaders don't have. But he's captured before the rebellion happens. And that really means that when it starts, they don't have much direction. Um, Wexford, probably the rebellion happens there partly because they haven't been infiltrated in the same way the United Irish movement, you know, it's a secretive society, quite porous to informers, but, um, you know, they, they haven't been infiltrated, um, but they're not as well organised probably as other parts of the country would have been. Um, but the rebels there secure an early victory at Ullard Hill so that kind of electrifies the more people can come in to join as they see you know that they've um, managed to achieve some success but there is quite a disconnect that starts to emerge between the largely protestant and united irish leadership so they're schooled in you know the non-sectarian messaging of the united irishmen liberty equality fraternity they established the wexford republic you know and are trying to manage what's happening um in that region and then the rebel rank and file many of whom haven't really fully assimilated united irish propaganda you know they're not um, you know, they, they, they haven't, you know, really adopted the language of the democratic rights um, of man. And it does start to spiral out of control into sectarian atrocities. There's a massacre of Protestants in a barn at School of Bogue where they're burned alive. There's another massacre of Protestant prisoners. Um, on uh, Wexford Bridge. Um, so absolutely that sense that the, the rebellion is no longer really at that point a united Irish rebellion. It's, all, it's a kind of all this um, sectarian resentment that is bubbling up to the surface and emerging in really explosive and quite savage ways. So going back to what you were saying about how the United Irishmen had been infiltrated, particularly in Dublin, mm. with that level of information that is going to the authorities, how is the uprising able to sort of flare up so quickly? Is it just quite simply that there isn't enough information on what's going on in, in Wexford or is there a kind of a degree of complacency amongst the English that, well, we, we've got the... The, the situation in Dublin in hand, so therefore everything else is going to fall into place. 
Yes, probably they, they know that once, um, so they, they, they were aware of what the plans were for the, the rebellion in Dublin. So basically they sent troops to all the points where the rebels were supposed to be assembling. So although there is a kind of rising when they see that they've been foiled, the rebels quite quickly and quietly will return home. Um, and there isn't some have suggested that they never um that there was a meeting of the united irish directory where the delegate who was sent from wexford um got drunk on his way to the meeting and never turned up and of course that's where the arrests are made so that they have the details of the membership for the various um, counties, but they don't have the, the Wexford membership list, so they aren't able to, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, infiltrate or kind of, you know, capture and identify uh, the key figures um, there. Yeah, so I think the Wexford would not have been necessarily thought of as a prime site for rebellion or a key strategic point either, you know, so I think that's probably it that, um, you know, they were just less focused um, on that region. So how do the Brits go about kind of re-establishing control? Well, I suppose the, the one thing that's interesting to note about how the rebellion itself is actually defeated is that it's largely done with Irish troops. So um, as in Britain in this period, um, there are um, home defence units raised. So there's an Irish militia and that's the rank and file of the militia is largely Catholic. And then from 1796, another body is raised, the Irish Yeomanry, which um, is more pro Protestant in its composition. And that's seen as being, in some ways, a more sectarian body, the armed wing of the Protestant ascendancy. But those Catholic soldiers from in the Irish militia will actually fight um, well and kind of loyally, as it were, against the rebels. Um, you know, so they're often sent from different counties of Ireland um, to Wexford and elsewhere. Um, you know, so the, a lot of, I suppose that's one of the um, paradoxes or, um, you know, apparent paradoxes is that it, it is, is often Irish soldiers who are um, at the forefront of defeating the um the rebellion um and they do that with reinforcements as well from um particularly fencible regiments who are sent um from britain um yeah so basically I mean, it doesn't as i said you know with although there's kind of continuing um i guess guerrilla warfare that really goes on until maybe 1803 most of the main um areas of rebellion are quite quickly um quashed yeah, yeah. I mean, there is an obvious question here, but perhaps you've kind of answered it already mm. within that about the French, because strategically, this was an obvious opportunity to cripple Britain. Mm. We've talked already about the efforts in 1796 to land a force and that not coming off because it's ostensibly because of the weather. So why aren't they able to capitalise on this? Is it a lack of forewarning? Is it a lack of willingness? Is it just that the whole thing is kind of mocked up in mm. such a short space of time that the French don't have 
time to react? What's what's the reasoning behind it all? Well, the easy answer, the, the quick answer is Napoleon. <laughs> um, so basically, the problem is, although there was interest, um, you know, uh, clearly in 1796, um, uh, in the French Republic, in launching um, a kind of dual invasion of uh, Britain and and Ireland, um, uh, by 1798, that commitment is really fading because Napoleon is so focused on the Mediterranean and Egypt. So that's where uh, his attention has been drawn and Ireland has kind of fallen off the French radar. So, so essentially what he, he draws, what would have been the troops available for an invasion of mm -hmm. Ireland yeah, so even though they're sending these smaller groups, but, you know, they only send about a thousand troops to the west of Ireland, um, you know, and they, they're quite successful. You know, they do defeat the government forces at Castle Bar and they do manage to um, penetrate quite deeply into um, the heart of Ireland. Um, you, you know, but which just makes you think what could they have done with a bigger force, you know, if they'd had 20,000 and a better force as well, if Napoleon himself had come. Yeah, things could have been very different. Absolutely. The the great fear of Britain if Napoleon lands, although admittedly that fear kind of comes to its zenith much later. Mm. What happens to that French force in the end? The, um, the, the General Humberts, is it? Yeah, um, well, they're actually treated, I mean, this really points to the differences between how the, um, you know, the government forces think of the French and the rebels. So um, the French prisoners are, you know, the, the French soldiers are taken prisoner, they're treated quite well, um, you know, I think they're sent to, um, taken as prisoners of war. The rebels who joined them um, when they landed are massacred. So yeah, there's a real sense that the, the brutality um, in, of the kind of, the prosecution of the campaign in Ireland is um, striking. You know, there's, it's seen as being outside the conventions of honourable warfare. So, um, you know, has, has, having read um, quite a lot of memoirs by soldiers who fought in Ireland and elsewhere in Europe during the revolutionary Napoleonic period, it is really striking that they um, talk frankly about committing atrocities in Ireland in a way that they wouldn't do for the Peninsula campaign or any other campaign. Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole literature there with Gavin Daly and, and mm. so on, isn't there, about yes. what people will and won't admit to. Mm. Um, uh, I, I'm half tempted to go down that route as well, but I know I'm always <laughs> talking about discipline with uh, my guests, so I, I will resist that urge this time. What changes in the wake of the uprising? Because it's kind of a gross understatement to say that the English are pretty unhappy mm -hmm. with what's happened. Yes, yeah, so I mean, obviously this has been a very expensive, a very costly distraction at a time of war. Um, so um, I suppose the, the most immediate um, response is that, you know, they, they introduce, as the rebellion is still kind of happening, they begin preparing proposals for uh, an act of union between Britain um, and Ireland. And that's been, you know, 
on the cards for quite a long time. Um, but, uh, you know, this is really seen as the moment um, uh, to introduce it. And, you know, as we were already discussing to kind of once and for all, um, uh, sort of uh, address the weakness, the vulnerability that Ireland creates for um, British defences. Uh, but of course, the union itself is dressed up in all sorts of emollient language about how this will civilise Ireland. I mean, it's not that emollient, it's quite offensive, of course, to many Irish people, but you know, that it will allow Ireland to um, enjoy greater commercial prosperity, all the benefits of the union and the empire, um, and so on. Um, but the British government has to, as they did in Scotland in 1707, you know, they, they can only get it through Parliament um, by bribing um, Irish parliamentarians who, who are pretty corrupt and unscrupulous um, bunch. But, you know, they will, uh, on the second attempt, yeah, they will uh, vote themselves out of existence. So the Act of Union, is it intended as a punishment but kind of window dressed as beneficial or is it simply a case of they, they keep kind of having this thoughts about whether or not it's a good time and that the rebellion just shows mm -hmm. look you, you've got to do something? Well, for a lot of people, I suppose you have to remember that for, for a lot of people, including, you know, United Irishmen, the Irish Parliament, the loss of the Irish Parliament is nothing to lament because they see it as the bastion of the Protestant ascendancy and it becomes increasingly so in the, in the 1790s. So actually it's a corrupt parliament, it's unrepresentative, it's blocked Catholic emancipation. So a lot of the United Irishmen are fairly you know, blasé about um, the passage of the Act of Union. Catholics, they win Catholic support for the Union by making a tacit promise that it will be accompanied by um, full Catholic emancipation. And as, as you know, I already mentioned, of course, George III puts his foot down on that score and William Pitt will resign over that because, you know, uh, in some ways the, even though, you know, Catholics weren't necessarily involved, it was premised on the promise that, uh, that they would uh, um, be emancipated and of course, you know, that there would be less of a threat within a um, United Kingdom than they had been as the majority population in um, uh, in Ireland. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that the, although there are a lot of the people who are most opposed to the union are sort of these um, not you know these kind of bigoted members of the Protestant ascendancy who don't want to see their power um, uh, lost, but you know, they're not necessarily, uh, there's not a lot of tears shed by other sections of the Irish population. I want to kind of finish this by dwelling for a moment on Britishness, and we mm. use the word British uh, a fair bit during this discussion. Uh, Linda Coley has fairly famously argued that Kind of the Napoleonic Wars represented a crucial period for the formation of what it meant to be British and, and she goes so far as to say that effectively being British almost sort of meant just not being French, however you wanted to define that. The Irish Rebellion seems to suggest, to me at least, that Britain and Ireland were a very, very long way from 
being united by a set of common principles. So how do we reconcile the two? Does just a lot change during the conflict, in your opinion, or, or do we not just reconcile the, the two? Is, is this just a flaw in, in Coley's argument? Yes, I, and I can understand why Linda Colley didn't want to take on Ireland or the problem of Ireland when she was writing um, uh, Britons. And she kind of very, you know, at the, at the beginning of that book, you know, says Ireland's Catholicism really rules it out from um, the integrative processes that make up Britishness because Protestantism is the key binding agent or one of the key binding agents um, so she kind of brackets Ireland off to focus on, on Scotland, England and Wales but of course you know as, as we've already noted Ireland is um, engaged in a lot of the integrative um, experiences that Kali highlights like the experience of, of um, you know, enlisting in the army during the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. So, you know, we're looking at 150,000 at least Irish soldiers who, who fight with the British forces in this period. Um, you know, uh, you'll know this well, but, you know, they're considered to be um, absolutely instrumental in victories like Waterloo. So there is a possibility there to build a unionist Irish identity off the back of the successes um, of uh, Irish soldiers uh, in the British Army uh, during that period, but that doesn't really seem to, to take off. But, you know, I think we can't discount that that was, that would have been a possibility in the early years um, after the union. Um, and the problem, I think, for unionism in Ireland or any sense of Britishness is really that failure to grant Catholic emancipation. Um, if it had been granted in 1801 or, you know, shortly thereafter, um, the Irish Catholic population may well have been reconciled to the British state. Um, I don't think you can uh, rule that out. Um, but as it is, you know, there's a long several decades of campaigning for Catholic emancipation led by Daniel O'Connell. And one of the interesting things looking at the history of Irish nationalism from the 18th to the 19th century is, you know, as we've talked about, Irish nationalism in a way in the 18th century is largely a Protestant phenomenon. It's led by Protestants that, you know, the United Irish leadership is largely Protestant. But then going into the 19th century, it will re-emerge as a Catholic, a, a predominantly Catholic phenomenon. And that's in part because of, um, you know, that sense of estrangement from the Union that comes from um, uh, not having emancipation granted at the beginning. Um, so yeah, you could, and you could look though again, I suppose, at actually what happens in Ulster. I mean, that's really interesting. And, you know, it is important to remember that Ulster in the 1790s is considered the most Republican part of Ireland. They're really at the vanguard of Republican separatism, um, you know, and the founders of the United Irishmen are Ulster Presbyterians in Belfast. So what happens to them? You know, that, so that part of the country 
does end up, you know, the descendants of those United Irishmen, many of them a century later are going to be unionists, they're going to be opposed to home rule for Ireland. Um, and yes, I suppose you could argue that's because they increasingly, you know, the differences between the um, Protestants diminish um, after 1800, so that they feel more of a sense of affinity with Anglicans than, um, you know, with the Irish Catholics. Um, but, you know, the, I suppose it does go to show the very different trajectories for those, the, those different um, communities in Ireland under the Union. Does it help the Unionist cause that they're able to emphasise, to what extent they're willing to emphasise, this is another thing, but they're able to emphasise that the, the, Briti the British victories that are secured over the course of the Napoleonic Wars, most famously under Wellington, mm -hmm. are the result of troops of all four nations of the Union, because that's something that you see being pushed mm -hmm. quite a lot in the contemporary publications, whether it be caricatures or newspapers. Mm -hmm. Is that something that is, is able to trickle down at a grassroots level, or is, is that just kind of the message that people want to push, that it just isn't kind of accepted more broadly? Yes, I think this is a really interesting question, and it's one that I'm always hoping uh, someone will explore in more detail, because there's been a lot written, of course, about the, um, you know, the way in which the, the contribution of Scottish troops is uh, to the British Army really becomes an intrinsic part of Scottish Unionism and the image of the Highland soldier as kind of um, enjoying a distinctive identity but that's also um, very British um, and of course the question is why doesn't that quite happen for Irish soldiers in the same way and there is a kind of a popular um, tradition of or you know in print culture there's lots of uh, um, novels that celebrate the Irish soldier there's songs so it is very much but you know the image of the kind of comical Irish soldier is very much there they write a lot of memoirs um, about their experiences in the army but it's not really capitalized on I mean the 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 military the, the memory of um, military heroism in the Napoleonic Wars is largely a Protestant phenomenon. Um, and of course, the memory that really gains um, uh, traction and really exerts a powerful hold um, uh, in Ireland for much of the 19th century will be of the 1798 rebellion. So um, it's the one that's sung up in ballads that will become, um, you know, especially a century later in 1898, it will become, a, 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 the memory of 1798 will um, become key to uh, rallying various, the, the nationalist movement going into um, the, the, the kind of later 1916 to the War of Independence um, phase of Irish nationalism. So yeah, I mean, so there's two memories there really to, that offer very different uh, versions of Irishness, one of which, you know, the memory of service in, in the British Army could have formed the foundation for a unionist identity, but of course the memory of the 1798 rebellion yeah, is it's very much a kind of um, national separatist um, identity. 
Petrina, this has been absolutely brilliant. I, I always love interviewing people, but this is definitely up there amongst my highlights. Thank you very much for joining me. But before you go, remind people of your book and where they can get hold of it. So well, the, the book that's out is uh, the very boringly titled uh, Narratives of War, um, uh, British, or no, what's it called again? Military and Civilian Experience in Britain and Ireland, 1793 to 1815. <laughs> so um, do, uh, do please, if you can find <laughs> cheap copies of it, it is of course a horribly overpriced academic text. <laughs> but thank you very much for having me, Zach. I really enjoyed that. I haven't been teaching this year, so it's kind of nice to be able to talk about my subject that I usually teach as a special subject with you. And when's the, the, the book that you're working on due out? Well, it, hopefully next year, but uh, all those details need to be confirmed. So, um, yeah. <laughs> when it's done, let me know and we'll, uh, we'll see about interviewing you again. Great. Thank you, Zach. <laughs> That was Katrina Kennedy joining me to discuss the Irish Rebellion of 1798. And as you heard, you can order Katrina's excellent books online now. That kicks off the first instalment of Irish Month and the fun continues every week here on The Napoleon Assist for the rest of March. I'll be joined by Jim Deary to discuss the Irish troops in Wellington's army, Marcus Beresford to talk about William Carl Beresford, the Marshal, and Andrew Dorman to talk about British troops in Ireland. I'm also doing a Voices from Ireland series, inspired by the success of the Voices from the Battlefield thing that I did for the anniversary of Waterloo. The idea is that people pick an extract written by an Irish soldier or civilian, record it and send it in, perhaps preceded by a few words on why you picked that particular one, and they'll be released later in the month. If you're interested in getting involved, drop me a line on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. A big thank you to my patrons who continue to support me on Patreon to make this podcast possible. Please check out the link in the description if you're interested in supporting the show. There's an exciting new perk of 10% off Napoleonic books from a prominent publisher. Particular thanks go to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Alexandra Churchill, an anonymous Canadian, Lynn Dawson, John Haynes, Anna Vakulenko, Jamie Kingston, Beatrice de Graff, Rory Muir, Brendan Teeling, James Bevan and Lucy Tatner. If you're watching on YouTube, remember to hit that subscribe button below. Yes, podcasters, you can watch the whole interview on YouTube. Just search for The Napoleonicist. And if you're watching these and want to explore the whole Napoleonicist series, all back episodes of the podcast are available on pretty much any podcasting platform. Please keep spreading the word on social media. The likes, shares, retweets and comments all help, as do the reviews. And remember that the discussion is always going on in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. Until next time, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.